I'm Derek Alexander Pope, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast rediscovers the untold stories of the American quest for liberty and justice for all. In early 1867, Congress passed the Reconstruction Acts. As a condition to be readmitted to the Union, these laws required the former Confederate states adopt new constitutions that provided for and protected the citizenship rights of the newly emancipated black Americans. Georgia was one of those states. David Parker is professor of history and assistant department chair at Kennesaw State University. He joins us to talk about Georgia's 1867 Constitutional Convention and the surprising contribution of a lawyer named Amos T. Ackerman. David, thank you so much for joining us on Hidden Legal Figures. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Derek. Thank you for the invitation to join you. Uh, you thank you. Uh, let me ask you, David, what first made you want to pursue a teaching, want to pursue teaching as a career? And what led you to make teaching history as your focus? I'm, I'm not really sure. My father was a preacher. So I got used to hearing him talk and watching him work. Teaching and preaching, I think, are sort of similar. I don't remember when I decided that this is what I wanted to do. Students sometimes tell me I sound like a preacher. So maybe I just came by it naturally. Interesting. I, I kind of get that myself. Sometimes people tell me that I sound like a minister. So teaching, preaching, lawyering, talking, they, they probably do all run right at I hand think, in hand. I think so. So, so you're a professor at Kennesaw State, correct? That's right. I've been here since 1993, so 27 years. 27 years. Now, when you were a student yourself, David, um, in high school, in college, later on in graduate school, what aspects of history appealed to you? And did that appeal stay more or less consistent throughout your education? You know, in high school, math and science were actually my favorite subjects, but in college, math and science are a lot harder. So I decided then to do to do history, the history of science. That was my uh, concentration as a history major, the history of science. Only when I got to graduate school did I move on to uh, American history. Graduate school was uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I encountered George Tyndall. George Tyndall is one of the big names in the history of the American South. I didn't know he was a big name when I met him because I hadn't done much American history. I knew some of the other professors' names, and so I was intimidated by them. But George Tyndall was just a pleasant little man with a bow tie, and I came to know him and to like him before I knew he was famous. He ended up being my dissertation director and uh, a very important mentor. Dr. Tyndall was especially interested in Southern mythology, the idea that there are stories and images and myths that shape the way people see the past and the present. And that had a big influence on me. That's interesting. You mentioned he has this theory about images and myths that shape the way people see the past. Uh, that seems to be a, how would I put it, uh, a recurring pattern in our present situation. 
Well, it does indeed, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> now, now, is there any moment during your teaching that you see little bits and pieces of yourself in your students? And and, and what what is it like when it becomes more than a student fulfilling a requirement? What's it like when history becomes intriguing to them? Sort of like you just mentioned when you came, you left the history of science and came across Mr. Tyndall. Yes, it's it's wonderful when that happens. I've, I've had a few students along the way who, who got really excited, not just to do well in class, but as you say, more than that. Students who sometimes they'll go to the archives for the first time, working on a research project for my class. They'll go to the archives for the first time and then they'll email me very excited. One student told me a few years ago, the documents spoke to me, he said. Mm. And when that happens, I think, well, Parker, maybe you're doing all right. Okay, okay. <laughs> when it when it comes to Georgia history, David, um, what are the major areas that you addressed, and who are some of the main historical figures? I mean, and of course. Uh, history buffs and even just those who have a cursory understanding of Georgia history can imagine that you would cover Georgia's founding and James Oglethorpe. But what other periods of Georgia history do you cover and what other people are part of that emphasis? I do a lot with uh, antebellum Georgia, slavery, uh, the sectional crisis, the coming of the Civil War. Uh, but I especially like the post-Civil War years, up through the 1920s or so. This was when a lot of, as you said, uh, a lot of our current understanding of the past, this is when that was created, the lost cause and all that, things that still shape our society today. Again, that idea of Southern mythology. And so we talk, and I like to discuss uh, Henry Grady, who was a mythmaker with the New South, uh, and people like Gene Talmadge, who had a view of what the South was. Uh, uh, people like that. This idea of Southern myth to me is really important. And as I've progressed as a teacher, it's become more and more important to me, getting back to Dr. Tyndall, I suppose. This idea that, you know, what really happened in the past, of course, that's important. But maybe just as important is the way people remember what happened in the past. Not just the facts of what happened, but how we remember that, how we order that in our heads, the narratives that we create from the past. Well, speaking of that post-Civil War period and the importance of exploring how we remember the past, how do we remember Georgia during the post-Civil War aspect? How do we remember Georgia during the Reconstruction? Let me start with this, Derek. Reconstruction began with President Andrew Johnson trying to restore the country after the Civil War. The Southern states had left, and now they needed to be brought back in. Johnson didn't really try to do much more than that, simply restore the Union. And he had pretty much accomplished that by the time Congress met for the first time since the end of the war in December of 1865. Congress realized that we couldn't stop as Johnson did simply with restoring the Southern states. A lot more had to be done. Those Southern states would have to be reformed, uh, rebuilt, reconstructed. That's what reconstruction means. A lot had changed in those five years. Before the war, slavery had existed. Uh, slavery was entrenched in the Southern states, in the United States. But now, 1865, not only is the war over, 
but slavery is now gone. And a number of people in Congress, especially Northern Republicans, realize that the issue was a lot more than just how to bring the Southern states back in. The issue was those 4 million people who had been enslaved. How do they fit into society now? What are they entitled to? What would the government have to do to protect their humanity, their human rights? That's what Reconstruction became. That's, that's what it was about. In Georgia, in my Georgia history class, I tell students that we're studying one state, but the story of Reconstruction is pretty much the same for the other southern states. Uh, some of the names change, the dates might be different, but that's just variation on a theme. And one theme, one theme in all of this early on especially was the theme of uncertainty. What, what just happened with this war and the ending of the war? What, what, what's happening? And remember, folks didn't have the internet to go to or cable television and things like that. And so news is slow and there was a lot of uncertainty all over. What, what has happened? And maybe more important, what happens now? That's a big deal of what Reconstruction is going to be, trying to decide what happens now in Georgia and in the rest of the South and the nation, what happens now? Do you think there is too little focus on or understanding of Reconstruction and what it meant to the nation then and what it means to us now, particularly as you talk about the importance of examining how, not just if, but how we remember? Exactly. So, so yeah, yes to both of those questions, too little focus and too little understanding. Maybe, maybe that's cause and effect. We need to remember that this idea of equal protection of the laws, regardless of race, that isn't something that people started talking about recently. It's been around for a century and a half. It came about during and because of Reconstruction. We need to remember that Reconstruction was more than just white folks trying to decide what the post-Civil War South would look like. That's the way we often tell the story. African-Americans are acted upon, but they are not themselves the actors. They're, they're, they're beaten up. They're discriminated against. But, of course, really, they were actually themselves actors, major actors in this story. And that's one thing we need to focus more on. You, you remember the movie Glory? Yes. What that did for African-Americans in the Civil War? It gave them agency. It gave them a role that they hadn't had before in that story. We need something like that. For reconstruction. We're, we're starting to do better, but part of the tragedy of reconstruction is the, the history of that history, what, what we call historiography. White historians are catching up now to what W.E.B. Du Bois did in the 1930s. Before Du Bois, there was A.A. A. Taylor, a Ruthius Ambush Taylor, another African-American historian. A.A. A. Taylor wrote a history of African-Americans in Reconstruction, South Carolina, no university press would touch it. So, so yeah, we as Americans have done, and perhaps we still do a pretty lousy job of understanding Reconstruction, of remembering Reconstruction, teaching Reconstruction. I'm going to emphasize that book because I know we have some listeners who are historians and they're going to want to rush out and get that. And you said that was a Ruthius Aruthius, his name was A-L-T-H-U-R-E-U-S, I believe. 
A.A. Uh, a. Taylor. A.A. A. A. Taylor. A. A. Taylor. And it was not, not published as a book. No, no university press would, would touch it because of its perspective and perhaps because of the author, an African-American historian uh, back in the 1920s. And so what happened that what should have been a book was first published uh, serially, part by part, in um, uh, the Journal of Negro History, as it was called then. That's an example of how we have this history of African-Americans in Reconstruction, African-Americans as major actors in Reconstruction, um, but it was just thrown by the wayside. No one paid attention to it. It wasn't worthy of publication. And we're just now, I think, uh, the mainstream historians starting to come to realize how important that part of the story is. This is something that African-American historians, Du Bois and Taylor and others, have realized for decades. Uh, white historians were kind of slow to come to that viewpoint. So you mentioned that Georgia was, you, you, when you talk to your students, you're telling them that you're focusing on Georgia, but it was just one of many states. It was one right, of many yeah, stories. Yeah. So what is it about Georgia? We, we know that Georgia, like some of the other Confederate states, had to be readmitted to the Union. Uh, there was something called the Reconstruction Act. You mentioned that a little bit earlier in our conversation that mm -hmm. were passed by Congress that required them to form new governments and new state constitutions. Is that correct? That's right. Right. Uh, when when Congress met in December 1865, remember, the war is over. It has been over for several months and Johnson has gone in and brought the southern states back in. And Congress now finally gets to meet. Uh, when Congress met in December of 1865, Johnson had already declared the southern states back into the Union. Congress was furious. Congress was mad at Johnson for acting on his own. And Congress was mad at the southern states for passing black codes, uh, laws that were generally limited to African-Americans and, and tried to limit uh, activities of African-Americans. Congress was mad at Southern states about the black codes and, and they were mad about uh, uh, how the Southern states had elected in their, their new governments, men who had been Confederate leaders, either military leaders or civil leaders. Georgia was one of the worst in this regard. Uh, the new state of Georgia that Johnson has just readmitted back to the union, one of its first new U.S. senators was Alexander Stevens former vice president of the Confederacy, having the, the second highest civil official in a so-called nation that had waged war against the United States, that, that was just too much. Congress, uh, very angry about the situation, immediately set up a joint committee to investigate the state of things in the South, and the result was the Reconstruction Acts of 1867, Congress said that before the Southern states could come back into the Union, before they could be states again, they had to do certain things, such as ratify the 14th Amendment, which uh, guaranteed civil rights for African-Americans, among other things, and, and come up with new uh, and appropriate state constitutions. Until then, the states, former states, would be like occupied territory under the control of the U.S. Army. And so when did Georgia hold its constitutional convention? All right, those, those Reconstruction Acts were in March of 1867. During the summer, um, Georgia voters were registered, both black and white. And then there was an election to decide on delegates to the Constitutional Convention. This was the committee that would write the new state constitution. 
a lot of uh, a lot of white Democrats boycotted that election for delegates, and so there was a Republican majority at the convention. The Constitutional Convention met in December of 1867, and they continued until March of 1868. They wrote a new constitution for Georgia that uh, recognized black citizenship and the right to vote, and these and other things made uh, the Constitution acceptable to Congress. We're talking with David Parker, who is a professor of history and assistant chair of the department at Kennesaw State University. A magnificent conversation about Reconstruction and Georgia's role in it. David, who was Amos T. Ackerman, and, and, and how did Mr. Ackerman fit into the Georgia Constitutional Convention of 1868? Ah, Amos, Amos Ackerman was uh, born in New Hampshire, 1821. He attended Dartmouth graduated Phi Beta Kappa, and then came south to teach. He ended up in Savannah at the home of John Berrien. Uh, he was a, uh, John Berrien was a U.S. Senator at the time, and, and he had been a U.S. Attorney General under Andrew Jackson. Anyway, Ackerman taught the Berrien children during the day, and then his time off, he studied the law in Berrien's library. That's they didn't go to law school back then. They read the law. You, you know that phrase. They read the law, and that's what he did. He read the law and studied the law. And in 1850, he was admitted to the Georgia Bar. He served briefly in the Civil War, a quartermaster, a, a supply officer, as the war was winding down. Then he went back to farming in Elberton, Elberton, a, a little town uh, on the border of South Carolina there on the Savannah River up from Augusta. Uh, he became a Republican. Ackerman became a Republican after the war. He had been pretty apolitical before the war and being a Republican and being a competent legal authority was probably what got him elected to the convention in 1867. As the convention met, Amos Ackerman pushed for African-American participation in the new state of Georgia, and especially for the right to vote. That might strike listeners as a little bit odd. You just mentioned that he served in the Confederate Army as a quartermaster, but here mm -hmm. he is now in the convention pushing for black voting rights. Is there anything else that was somewhat peculiar about Mr. Ackerman? Yeah, there, there are certainly some, some contradictions here. He he owned slaves a dozen or so before the war. And even though he questioned the idea of secession and his service in the Confederate army was brief and uh, apparently reluctant, he still fought in a war against the United States. There's, there's no defending the indefensible. Maybe the best we can do is to acknowledge that uh, historical figures like contemporary figures are often complex. We might remember Walt Whitman from Leaves of Grass. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Maybe Ackerman contained multitudes. And there were certainly contradictions there in his life. Certainly. And when you mentioned that he was one of the leading Republican lawyers and now he's advocating for black voting rights, that's that sounds a little something different than what we are. We think about generally of Democrats and Republicans today. That seems to stand in stark contrast to that. 
Um, sounds like that Republicans back then are what we think of Democrats generally today, and Democrats today are generally what we think of Republicans. Democrats back then are generally what we right. think of Republicans today. That's uh, that's about right. Uh, some sometimes I think they did stuff like that just to confuse my students, <laughs> my, my <laughs> students and everybody else. Okay. Uh, let let me give you a little bit of history here. The modern Republican Party. There were the, the Jeffersonian Republicans. You know, way back at the beginning of American history, but the modern Republican Party was formed in the 1850s mainly to, to limit the spread of slavery out West. It wasn't an abolition party, but it had a lot of abolitionists in it. The Republican Party, when it was formed in the 1850s, it was a Northern party. It was entirely sectional. It wasn't organized in the South at all until after the Civil War. Lincoln didn't get a single Southern vote in 1860 because he wasn't on the ballot. The Republican Party wasn't organized in the South. Certainly he would have gotten a few votes anyway if he had been on the ballot. And then after the war, it was Republicans in Congress who pushed for racial equality and so forth during Reconstruction. The point is, a lot of white Southerners hated the Republicans. The South, from Reconstruction on, was a, was a one-party region, and that party was the Democratic Party. Over the next few decades, Republicans were so weak in the South that they often didn't even bother putting up candidates. African-Americans in the South, they would have been Republican, of course, the party of Lincoln and emancipation, but by the 1890s or so, they were once again being denied the right to vote. Nowadays, African-Americans, as you said, are pretty loyal to the Democratic Party and conservative whites are, of course, Republicans. There were several points you can trace in this, uh, what they call this party realignment. Uh, for example, with the New Deal of the 1930s, some African-Americans might have switched their political allegiance to the Democrats. But the big change came in 1964 with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act was passed with bipartisan support. Republicans supported it. Uh, they had to. Southern Democrats opposed it almost to a person. So it, it was passed with bipartisan support, but it was promoted strongly by a Democratic president, Lyndon Johnson. LBJ knew what was going to happen. When he signed the bill, he said, we have lost the South for a generation. We Democrats, we have lost the South for a generation. He was a little overly optimistic there. Hmm. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. Thurmond had been a strong Democrat his whole life up to that point. But now with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he said, the party of our fathers is dead. The Democratic Party has forsaken the people. A copy editor might now go back and put a little carrot, you know, a little arrow and say the white people. Mm. Uh, but in any case, the Republican Party in uh, 1964, when all of this was happening, the Republican Party in 1964, uh, Barry Goldwater was the presidential candidate. And and they were happy to, to welcome these Southern conservative Democrats who had suddenly become disenchanted with the party of their fathers and their fathers and their fathers. There's more to the story than that over the next couple or three decades, economic and cultural and religious issues also strengthen that party realignment. But, but yeah, the parties pretty much switched positions on a lot of issues between then and now. And in a lot of ways, they are virtually mirror images of what they used to be. 
So Georgia goes ahead and adopts its new constitution and gets readmitted to the union. What happens next? All right. Things look good for Georgia in the spring of 1868. They had this new constitution with African-American rights protected. Uh, new elections in April brought in a Republican governor. His name is Rufus Bullock. Rufus Bullock stood for civil rights. And the elections in April brought in a new legislature that included 32 African-Americans, the first ones uh, ever in the Georgia legislature, of course. Things look promising. Georgia's back in the Union. Federal troops are withdrawn. Georgia's back on her own. Uh, but almost immediately, of course, uh, problems. That new legislature, one of its first items of business was to expel most of those African-American members. They said that the new Constitution says that Blacks can vote, but it says nothing about Blacks holding office. And as soon as the federal troops were gone, there began a, a wave of violence and intimidation against African-Americans, a wave of violence that's frankly hard to even imagine today. In 1868, there were over 350, in that one year, over 350 murders or assault with intent to kill in Georgia. The victims were African-Americans trying to exercise their new civil and political rights, or sometimes whites, Republicans who supported African-Americans. This intimidation, this terrorism was tremendously effective. In the April elections, April 1868, the elections that brought in Rufus Bullock and those African-American legislators, in the April elections in Oglethorpe County, just east of Athens, there had been over 1,100 Republican votes in April. In November, the presidential election, there were only 116, from 1,100 to 116. Mm. That is how well that Klan intimidation worked. In Columbia County, between Elberton and Augusta, there on the Savannah River, in Columbia County, the April Republican vote was over 1,200. In November, there was one solitary vote mm. for Republican presidential candidate U.S. Grant. So after Georgia was let back into the Union, after the troops were withdrawn, uh, things became really bad really quickly with the expulsion of the Black legislators, the rise of the Klan, the worst episode of that violence, though, was in Camilla in September. Camilla is a little town in southwest Georgia. There was to be a, a political rally, a Republican rally in Camilla, and several hundred African-American, uh, uh, along with a handful of white supporters, walked from Augusta nearby to Camilla for this uh, Republican rally. As they entered the courthouse square there in Camilla, white men standing inside buildings around the square opened fire on them, killing a dozen or so, wounding about 30 others. This was the state of things in the latter half of 1868 in Georgia. The year started out promising, hopeful. It looked like things might honestly be a lot better, but a pretty hellish ending to 1868. This led Congress in 1869 to uh, to kick Georgia back out. Apparently, re apparently Georgia was not reconstructed after all. Hmm. Georgia would be readmitted or 
I guess, re-readmitted a little later, 1870, 1871. Meanwhile, though, something, something interesting had happened with uh, Amos Ackerman. Uh, Richard White, an African-American man, was elected clerk of Superior Court in Chatham County, but he was then denied the position. The argument was that even though the Georgia Constitution gave African-American men the right to vote, it didn't give them the right to hold office. This was, of course, the same rationale that the legislature had used to expel those new African-American members. Amos Ackerman uh, was one of Richard White's attorneys uh, when his case was argued before the Georgia Supreme Court and Ackerman won. Richard White could indeed hold that office, the Georgia Supreme Court decided. And this led to a similar case in which those expelled African-American legislators were given their seats back in the Georgia legislature. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this case, but one that I find most interesting is one, one of the justices who decided this, and he voted uh, with the majority, he voted in favor of the decision, was uh, Joseph Brown, Joe Brown, who had been wartime governor of Georgia. So a little switch there. We talked about uh, uh, historical figures being complex. Uh, well, here's another example of that. Joe Brown, who had led Georgia uh, in the fight uh, of the Civil War, uh, is now on the Georgia Supreme Court arguing that those former slaves should be allowed not only to vote, but to hold office. Perhaps he must have been reading the quote that you're thinking of the quote that you mentioned from Walt Whitman. Yes, I do contradict myself <laughs> at that moment. He contained all kinds of multitudes. All kinds of me. multitudes, <laughs> yes. Now, that, this case is really fascinating because also the chief justice at that time was Justice Henry Kent McKay, and he too had served in the Confederate Army, but and he wrote that it surely that the same black men who had participated in the Constitutional Convention, the same white men who had participated alongside black men in the Constitutional Convention, suggesting that this new constitution granted the right, right to vote, clearly none of these people were sitting there participating with the thought process that it did not entail right. <laughs> in, in seeking and holding elective office. Right. We, we have a copy of this case that's posted on our website. For those who are interested in it, you can find it at hiddenlegalfigures.com because it's a very fascinating read. And when I first read it, if you like me, you'll see that Justice McKay uses the word absurd or absurdity throughout the decision to bolster his viewpoint of that Mr. White certainly could hold office from that standpoint. Now, at, at one point, uh, Ackerman takes his views on voting rights national. He, he goes beyond Georgia, doesn't he? Right, right. Um, a little bit before this case, September of 1868, uh, the, the, the White case was uh, early 69, I think. September 1868, a few days before that Camilla massacre that I mentioned, a few mm -hmm. weeks before the presidential election, September 1868, Amos Ackerman wrote a letter to the chairman of the state Republican committee agreeing to serve as a Republican presidential elector uh, for, for U.S. Grant, who was the uh, Republican presidential candidate. He wrote a letter agreeing to serve as, uh, as a Republican elector, and he agreed then to allow that letter to be published in the New York Times. And it appeared mid-September on the front page of 
the New York Times. It got a lot of uh, attention there. In this letter, uh, Ackerman said, I have no hope for the speedy return of peace, order, and security to our troubled country, but in the election of General Grant. So he was he was obviously a, a, a strong Republican at this point, uh, strongly supporting Grant. He talks in this letter about, quote, the violent passions that are embodied in the Democratic Party of the South. It can bring forth nothing but evil. And remember, a few days later in Camilla, it did bring about a good bit of evil. But mainly he talks about black voting. This is a serious matter, he said. When first proposed, Ackerman wrote, my prejudice were strong against it. But after reflection, I am persuaded that it is our wisest policy. He said that the strongest objection to black voting was their ignorance. Uh, African-Americans had not had the opportunity for education, of course, as slaves, uh, uh, teaching slaves uh, to read, educating slaves was illegal. So, of course, there was uh, uh, ignorance in that sense, illiteracy among African-Americans. He said the strongest objection is African-American ignorance, but he said that people who make that argument seem to have no problem with ignorant white people voting. Hmm. And in any case, he said ignorance maybe shouldn't be considered as disqualifying. And this is my favorite sentence in that whole letter. It was not the ignorant, he said. It was not the ignorant who plunged us into the fatal gulf of secession. Mm. Mm. And, and and what kind of reception did he receive back in Georgia from that from that position and, and, and nationally? He was he was criticized in Georgia, but not as much as you might imagine. By this time, folks know him. Uh, this was not a surprise. Maybe the, the level of attention that he got was surprising to some Georgians, uh, but, but his views were, uh, were not unknown. Uh, in Elberton, he had supported African-American men uh, going to the polls, uh, being, uh, being able to participate in political rallies and so forth. And so his, his, uh, his position was known. His views were not uh, invisible to Georgia. Uh, but this got him a little bit of, of attention nationwide, perhaps. Maybe that was the bigger place uh, and maybe the more important place, because that is going to help bring him, I think, to, uh, uh, to a more national role in, uh, in this story. Now, let's talk about his later career. Uh, after Grant is elected president, he goes on to serve as attorney general in his administration. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And spend some time prosecuting the very atrocities that you referenced earlier committed by the Ku Klux Klan. That's right. Uh, 1869, shortly after the publication of that letter, uh, Ackerman was named federal district attorney for Georgia a year later, summer of 1870, U.S. Attorney General. About the same time as he became U.S. Attorney General, Congress was passing a series of laws designed to crack down on the Klan. These laws, they were oftentimes called the Enforcement Acts. These laws made it a crime to interfere with any citizen's right to vote. Uh, it placed national elections under the supervision of federal marshals and Perhaps most famously, it outlawed characteristic activities of the Klan, like wearing masks or disguises 
as part of a, a plan or action to intimidate others. Amos Ackerman, as Attorney General, used these new laws to investigate and prosecute the Klan in South Carolina and Mississippi and really all across the South. By 1872, the Klan had pretty much ceased to exist as an organization. Uh, violence continued, of course, discrimination and violence continued, although on a much lesser scale. But it's true that the Klan as an organization ended about 1872. It will be reborn, of course, on the top of Stone Mountain in 1915. Some folks credit Amos Ackerman with ending the Klan in the early 1870s. There were other people and other factors involved. Still, it's doubtful that the Klan would have ended so quickly had it not been for the actions of Amos Ackerman. William McFeely, who was a professor of history for years at the University of Georgia, wrote a, a famous biography of, of Grant, General Grant, and then President Grant. Professor McFeely in that book said, perhaps no attorney general since has been more vigorous in the prosecution of cases designed to protect the lives and rights of black Americans. That's pretty good. No attorney general since Ackerman has been so vigorous in protecting the rights of African-Americans. That was in the 1980s and perhaps he would have to change that opinion since then, but still that's a, a considerable achievement. It really is. You mentioned some of the, he, he investigated some of the outrageous cases in Mississippi and other states, including Georgia. Uh, there was a murder of a gentleman named John Walthall and Maria Carter provided testimony in October of 1871 to the Joint Select Committee investigating the murder of a black man from Georgia. Uh, attorney Sandra Davis is going to lend her considerable talents in portraying Maria Carter. And let's take a listen to a portion of her testimony. They came hollering and knocking at the door. I answered them. They hollered, open the door. One of them had a sort of gown on. They put a gun on my husband and asked him if he was John Walthall. I said, no. And they asked where he was, and we told them he was up to the next house. I heard a chair fall over in John Walthall's house. He tried to get under the house. They ran ahead and broke the door down and jerked his wife out of the bed. They knocked his wife about, and I heard them cursing her. They struck her over the head with the pistol. They put their guns on John, and they shot him. Maria Carter, October 1871. When you hear testimony like that, David, you can't help but think that there was just overwhelming evidence for Mr. Ackerman to use in his prosecution. <laughs> overwhelming evidence, indeed. That uh, that bit of testimony that we just heard, it's, it's, it's amazing, it's horrible. Uh, that was just uh, one little piece of uh, a, a, a huge body of evidence. Back in 1871, uh, the summer and fall of 1871, Congress had uh, created a, a, a special joint committee. It was called the Joint Select Committee to inquire into the conditions of affairs in the late insurrectionary states. And for several months, they interviewed literally hundreds of witnesses uh, people who had stories like this uh, went to Washington and were interviewed. 
And uh, this kind of testimony fills 13 volumes, huge books, a very small print. So yes, this is a this is an amazing story, one of one of many. This this is how bad things were. As you mentioned, they some have said that he, he no, no attorney general since has done much more for the preservation of rights than than Ackerman. Isn't it also clear or, or, or fair to say that his investigations created the precursor to what led to the modern FBI? Is that there? There is some kind and you'll have to ask someone who knows more about this than I do. But I do know that there is some sort of organizational flow from uh, the office there in the Department of Justice that uh, that Ackerman occupied by office. I don't mean his physical office, but uh, but that position and uh, and and the FBI. Interesting. Talk about multitudes. And how long did he serve as attorney general? And uh, when his time in that position had concluded, what did Mr. Ackerman do for the rest of his life? He served very briefly. Uh, by by 1871, he's going to be out of that position. Um, we don't know why. This is one of these great mysteries. Historians have come up with all kinds of possible uh, explanations why Grant uh, asked for his resignation. One possibility is he kept going on and on about the Klan uh, at every cabinet meeting, the Klan this and the Klan that, and some folks said he was uh, a little too too much on the Klan. Maybe other folks, other cabinet members got tired of hearing it. Another possibility is that he was also, when, when he was not uh, uh, investigating and prosecuting the Klan, he was investigating railroads, these Western railroads that were being built in the late 19th century, and they would get huge government subsidies and land and money and so forth. And uh, there was the idea that they were not always using it properly. And perhaps there was graft and fraud, if you can imagine such a thing. And he was investigating that. And and some folks suggest that maybe the, the, the railroad uh, men uh, leaned on Grant to get rid of this uh, attorney general who had become a thorn in, uh, in their side. Uh, it's also possible it was just a personnel thing. Uh, one of... Um, one of Ackerman's uh, 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 assistants uh, really wanted this position, and uh, uh, he was the one who followed uh, Ackerman in. Maybe, maybe, maybe the assistant put a, a bug in uh, Grant's ear to to open up the spot for him. We don't know just why, but uh, for whatever reason, Ackerman's term in office was relatively brief. He returned to Georgia, but he returned, incidentally, not to Alberton as he went up to Washington a couple of years earlier uh, to serve as attorney general, he was, he was afraid to leave his family. He had a wife and several children by this point. He was afraid to leave his family there in Elberton. The racial climate was just too, too bad. Uh, and he had, he had uh, irritated too many people there. He was afraid to leave them without protection. And so shortly before he went to Washington as attorney general, he moved his family to Cartersville, uh, up in Bartow County, uh, uh, half an hour or so north of Atlanta. He moved his family to Cartersville, where he thought that uh, the racial climate would be a little milder, where his family would be more accepted and safer. And so when he came back from Washington, he went 
not back home to Elberton, but to his new home in Cartersville. And there he, uh, he stayed for the next eight or nine years. He, he dies uh, in 1880, uh, practicing law and uh, um, I think enjoying being out of the public eye for, for a while. Amos Ackerman is definitely one of the more fascinating figures from Georgia history. Uh, we hear words in our con contemporary political landscape describing it as tribal, divisive, very contentious. That is certainly reminiscent of and rooted in the period of time in Georgia history that you have so ably described. We also hear a lot about the about dismantling and tearing down Confederate memorials, and, and rightfully so. But how does a figure like Ackerman figure into and add to the value of our deliberations and dialogue of today? Because he certainly is a very nuanced character. Indeed. I, I think he stands as, uh, as an exception to the lost cause. The lost cause, this idea that the, the Confederate cause, although it was lost on the battlefield, it was correct, it was right, it was proper. This no notion that, uh, you know, the slaves had been happy, Southern society was superior to the North, uh, God favored <laughs> Southern civilization and so forth. This, this cause, even though the Confederate bid for political independence was lost, we can maintain that ideal that ideal for which our soldiers fought on the battlefield, that sort of thing, the lost cause. Uh, the lost cause was uh, sort of predicated on the notion that it was consensus, you know, that, that, that this is what white Southerners believed. Uh, this is one reason why it's remained so popular. It, it was the South, or this is the idea anyway, it was the South. And this is why Ackerman and people like him, I think, are so important. He was an exception to that. He shows that there were alternatives, uh, that the lost cause was not, in fact, consensus, that there were other views. And if we want to look for a Southern tradition, there are other traditions that we can find and follow besides the lost cause. Those other traditions and other means, how do we get them? How do we get that? How do we get Ackerman into the public space? And more importantly, how does that become part of our workable national memory? I think by teaching history is a big part of it. I, uh, I like to show my students an old book that I have on my shelves here in my office, an old book. It was published in 1907 by Harper and Brothers, a big New York publisher. Harper had a, a series called The American Nation. And this was a history of the United States in 25 or so volumes from the beginning to the present. Uh, the present, of course, was over a century ago. Anyway, I show my students volume 22 in Harper's The American Nation series. Volume 22 was the volume on reconstruction. I'm holding it in my hand. Uh, right now. It was written by a professor at Columbia University named William Archibald Dunning. Dunning wrote in this book, this book became sort of the standard interpretation of Reconstruction. 
Dunning wrote in this book about how Johnson was so good about getting the Southern states back into the Union, how those evil radical Republicans in Congress hated white Southerners, punished white Southerners, forcing them to accept their former slaves as equal, how those former slaves were ignorant and lazy, they weren't ready for equality or citizenship and so forth. There, there were, of course, dissenting voices to this. I mentioned Du Bois and others earlier, but Dunning's book was, was mainstream, pretty much consensus. This is, this is what people read, and this is the way a lot of people, not just Southerners, this is the way a lot of people in the United States thought when they looked back at Reconstruction, when they looked at how we got here. I sometimes wonder if Margaret Mitchell read that book. Hmm. Anyway, I show my students this book from 1907, Dunning. And then I'll show them another book published by the same publisher, now called Harper and Rowe, toward the other end of the 20th century. Harper had put out a new version of that old American history series. They call this one the New American Nation, the New American Nation. And I read in graduate school in the 1980s, I read several of those. The volume on Reconstruction in this New American Nation series was written by another Columbia professor, Eric Foner. Foner's book on Reconstruction was very different than Dunning's had been. In Foner's telling of Reconstruction, Northern, Northern reformers were not vindictive, they were, they were noble. Southern whites were resistant, sometimes violently so. African-Americans were competent and more to take on this new role in society. For Foner, the failure of Reconstruction wasn't that it tried to do too much. It's that it didn't do enough. Foner reminds us that the promise of Reconstruction is still just that. A century and a half later, it's still just that, a promise, a promise that maybe we can still bring to fruition. Donald Trump recently complained, they're trying to change our history. Well, yes, we are. Hmm. We have to. If we can't change the way people remember the past, it's going to be hard going forward. How we tell the story is just as much as important as telling it in the first place. David Parker from Kennesaw State University, thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. We can do this for another hour, but I know you got to get back to your students. We'll have to have you back at some point. Thank you so much for joining us on Hidden Legal Figures. Derek, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being part of the program and I appreciate all that you are doing there. Thank you. Amos Tappan Ackerman a hidden legal figure that changed America. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.